You know, a favorite movie from Kelly's childhood is called The Shakiest Gun in the West. Oh, I think that's a favorite of you guys. Yep, starring Don Knotts. So I don't think I have to tell you the plot or anything like that uh, behind a movie that's about a dentist that gets confused for a gunslinger in the Old West. One particular scene, Don Knotts' character is explaining why he was supposedly hiding his quick-draw skills uh, prior to taking out a, 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 a dreaded gunslinger. And his explanation was, it's all part of the plan. And he, and he kind of had a, a guy next to him that was repeating everything he said uh, as he spoke. And so as Don Knotts said, it's all part of the plan, the fellow next to him says, it's all part of the plan. And uh, so over the 30 years that I have known Kelly's family, there's been countless times where we've been working on some project together that's going awry, or they get settled by sheer luck. And I can count on my father-in-law saying, it's all part of the plan. And then just like two seconds later, within two seconds, hearing my brother-in-law following with, it's all part of the plan. <laughs> this statement continually rang in my ears as I studied this passage and prepared for this message. While Jesus is waved off or misunderstood by most of the crowds that he spoke to, and he's, as he's followed as rabbi by such a relatively small few, you realize it's all part of the plan. From the common theme in these parables that we're looking at here this morning, I want you to see God's persistent, powerful kingdom work. So we pick back up in Matthew 13 with a similar format that we saw in the first half of this chapter. A parable is taught, and here in this situation, three parables are taught. A statement is made about why Jesus is teaching in parables, and then the explanation is given. So we pick up in verse 24, where we read, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. So the, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? Speaking of the weeds in the field. But he said, No. Lest it, in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants 
and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And next we read a statement on why Jesus taught in parables, just like we saw in the middle of his teaching the parable of the sower, and then he explained it, and then, or, or he explained why he was teaching in parables, and then later he explained the parable. We read in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So with, as, with the earlier, uh, as with earlier with the explanation of the four soils, the explanation comes later to Jesus' followers. We read in verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. When we read Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, this detail is shared, I think, as, as almost a visual reminder. We can envision the fact that there was only those who followed Jesus that were privately learning the meanings behind his parables at this point in his ministry. Aren't you glad that Jesus gives us some explanations and the Holy Spirit allowed Matthew, Mark, and Luke to record them? As I mentioned, the first half of our chapter, what we looked at last week with the parable of the four soils, it, it illustrates what was experienced by those who simply listened to the parable. And those who followed Jesus were able to later hear the explanation of the parable. And between those two sections, we find Jesus explaining why he speaks to the crowd in parables. He shares why he gives those who follow him the explanation. What's cool is that the, the very parable that we looked at last week actually explains why some listen and learn by following Jesus and leaning in and others do not, illustrated by the four soils. And we learned from Jesus last week that the difference between a person that hears and bears fruit and the one that does not is the condition of the person's heart. So Jesus answers this question from his disciples. In verse 37, you see up on the screen there, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Even though we're jumping into the middle of our passage uh, here, let's look first at verses 34 and 35, which is, is uh, 
Matthew's explanation of the situation. All these things he writes, Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. I really think that Matthew, and by that I mean you know the Holy Spirit writing through Matthew, inserts this explanation in order to teach us. But it also gives us a feel for the separation of the telling of the parables and the explanation that Jesus gives. Matthew explains the basis for Jesus' teaching in parables as the fulfillment of prophecy. Of course, we know it also as a response to the religious leaders and and their, their refusal to see the truth even though it was so plain before them. And Jesus describes this as a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Even as he's casting out demons, showing that the kingdom of God was was being, being manifested on earth. They're sitting there saying, oh, he's only casting out demons by the power of Satan. And from that point forward, Jesus teaches in parables. And Matthew explains the basis of his teaching in parables as the fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew isn't giving excuses for why the crowd wasn't understanding. He's explaining how the kingdom was always planned to grow with unexpected power or unexpected success and over a long period of time with persistence. Those are the themes that we see in these parables that he, that he groups together. I heard Albert Moeller describe parables as being like a hand grenade. Jesus' parables being like a hand grenade that someone pulls the pin and sets on the table in front of someone. What are they going to do with it? Except in, in, in the situation of the parable, the hearers should want Jesus' parable hand grenade to blow up on them. To blow up their life. For them to absorb it completely. If it goes off and they're like, cool story, bro, that's not a good thing. Likely means that their heart is hard like the path. Also, I think that the focus is on the strength of God's kingdom, despite its deceptively small beginnings. Despite the low interest of the crowds. The words are meant to calm our hearts regarding the slow, insignificant start of Christ's kingdom and the lack of interest on the part of the crowd. God seems to be saying, everything is right on schedule for my maximum glory. And we learned this morning that despite appearances, God's kingdom, his kingdom work is methodical, transforming, and permeating. It's methodical in the parable of the wheat and tares. It's transforming, describing the parable of the mustard seed. And it's permeating, described in the parable of the leaven. So for the, from the first parable of the wheat and the tares here, let's see how we can trust that God's methodical work will win in the end. 
He described here in verse 24 how the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Of course, you're only going to sow good seed in your field that, that you know is going to bring a harvest. And he's describing a wheat field at this point. Don't think of like soybeans or corn where everything's neatly in a row. You've seen wheat fields before where it's more like just the, the field is just full of the crop. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. In other words, spread the seeds of a weed among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Remember, when Jesus talks about God's kingdom, he's talking about when God is at work, where God is at work. With Jesus on the scene... His kingdom was present. But when Jesus returns in the full expression of his power, the kingdom of God will be fully expressed. Jesus describes a scenario where weeds are intentionally sowed into a landowner's field. This was a common enough practice to get back at somebody that it was actually outlawed in Roman law code. So it was against the law to sow weeds into someone's field. I personally wish that they would outlaw planting zucchini in gardens. I think the world would be a better place. In fact, all squashes. I, I, anybody want to second that motion? No, that's all right. But anyways... So we read in verse 27, and the servants of the master of the house came to, came and said to him, the landowner, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? You hear in this representation of the angst of Jesus' followers. If, if you're the kingdom, if you're the king of God's kingdom and you're here on site why are there so many people that aren't following you? Going back to the parable, the landowner said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? Now, this poisonous, there is a poisonous weed that looks much like the wheat plant in its beginnings. It's called Darnell. I don't know why anybody would call their son that, but... Darnell is a poisonous weed that's what's being described here. It's indistinguishable for wheat from wheat until it matures and the heads develop on it. So they're, they're noticing this later in its development. And by this time, the, the later stage is when the plants bore grain is probably when the, it would have been noticed that there are weeds in among the wheat. And the response of the landowner we see in verse 29. But he said, no, lest, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. By the time it was realized here, the weeds' stronger roots would have been intertwined with the wheat plant's roots. And the attempt to pull the weeds out would have uprooted 
the wheat. So, so when the reapers would be, would be uh, reaping the wheat, whatever that involves, they would be getting out the weeds as well and, and binding them up and separating them at that time. The wheat would go into the barn and the weeds would be thrown into the fire as fuel. So let's jump ahead to uh, the explanation that Jesus gives in verse 37. On the request of the disciples after they enter the house, this isn't necessarily the 12 disciples. These are Jesus' disciples that are following him as their rabbi, which would have been more than just the 12 that Jesus chose out from among them. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is, is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Jesus kind of gives us like a key. He gives us a rubric for interpreting this. The landowner, the one who sowed the good seed into this field, is Jesus himself, the Son of Man. And if you want to look at just how amazing that title is, you can look at Daniel 7. The field is the world. This is, this is the larger world in general. But I think that the Jewish uh, followers of Christ would have been thinking about their fellow Jews. Um, and uh, so it's kind of in the context of uh, this field that Jesus is trying to minister in, yet there's so many weeds in it compared to those that are bearing fruit of his teaching. Jesus is talking about what's going on in the world in general. <clears throat> the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, followers of Christ, those who had had embraced his gospel today in, in our point in our point in biblical history in the in the development of the gospel where we are at in God's kingdom on this earth these would be people that have received Christ as their savior who have recognized that Christ's death paid the penalty of their sins enabling them to receive him as their savior and walk in relationship with God which means being indwelt by his Holy Spirit. So in addition to Jesus and his followers, we also see in this parable that there is a competing kingdom at work. He tells us that the weeds are unbelievers. Sons, this is not a flattering uh, title, sons of the evil one. Unbelievers, those who refuse to believe and follow Christ, are described in a very negative way here. They are rebellious sons of the ultimate rebel. Ephesians 2 describes every one of us before knowing Christ as our Savior. As you can read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and when she once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <clears throat> 
all of us, no matter where we are at in our relationship with Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, were at one time sons of the evil one, rebellious sons of the ultimate rebel. He tells us that the enemy is the devil, the original instigator of mankind's rebellion. And the harvest is the end of the ages. And the workers are God's angels. At the end of the last epoch of time, which is the end times, the eternal state will begin. And at that time of transition, the true realm that we don't presently see will be revealed. The unseen realm, if you will. And everything of this time that we thought to be important is going to fade away. And we will, be, we will discover that it's true that the kingdom of God has been working persistently and powerfully. The other detail we learn about from listening to Jesus here is that the kingdoms will get sorted out. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's angelic workers are going to bring in the harvest of his children. And they're going to have separated out those who are destined for hell. When we get to Matthew 25, like a couple of years from now, we'll read in verses 31 through 33, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on God, his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Whereas before, rebel and royalty were intermingled throughout history, we will be separated. Right now, rebellious men and women find comfort in numbers while shaking their fist at God. But the time will come when, they, when they'll be gathered up as helpless as a pulled weed, and they'll be cast into hell like clippings on a burn pile. And I don't revel in saying this. And sadly... While the fire will quickly consume them completely, the misery and pain will be unending. We should grieve the waste that rebellion makes of one that was made in the image of God. And as we, we should cringe at the knowledge that they will feel the searing pain of wasting their eternity. And rebellion is so deep-seated. It is so destructive. As C.S. Lewis described, sin is so devastating that God's image bearers, to, it's so devastating to God's image bearers that the doors of hell will be locked from the inside. It will be 
a manifestation of their own sin. The rebellion of sin is so devastating that the unredeemed would choose hell over God's presence. We, pick, we see in verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who was who, He who has ears, let him hear. In contrast to the sad waste of those made in the image of God, ruined by rebellion, we who have been redeemed by God's grace will shine in the likeness of God's glory. What is said in Daniel will come true of us. Daniel 12.3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Trust that God's methodical work will win in the end. There is a competing kingdom at work, and the kingdoms will get sorted out. Just like when you see uh, those Roundup-resistant weeds growing in the fields this year, you're not going to worry. You know that the farmer plans to separate the corn or the beans from the weeds. In the same way, don't fret that God's kingdom is somehow going to implode from the weight of the world. Also, don't listen to anyone who tries to tell you that the unsaved are going to be in heaven. That doesn't help the situation at all. What they need is the gospel, and we need to share it with them. Next, from the parable of the mustard seed, and these uh, last two parables we'll cover quickly. For one, we're not told a whole lot in their, in their interpretation. But don't you love how, well, I love how we're left with what it looks like to follow Christ here. Christ tells some parables. Matthew explains why not everyone is going to hear the explanation. And the reason being, not everyone is going to follow Jesus to hear the answer. And then we're shown the illustration of Jesus and his disciples going somewhere else and the disciples leaning in and saying, explain this to me. And he only explains one of them here. He probably explained the others too. But we're left with two others that he didn't explain there. You know what I think we're supposed to do? Lean in ourselves and say, Jesus, explain these to me. So in my leaning in this week, I'll do my best to explain them to you. So from this next parable of the mustard seed, let's see how we can trust that God's transforming work will be a blessing. It says he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus lays out this, this scenario of his kingdom. He compares a very small mustard seed. He's using hyperbole by calling it the smallest. 
He also employs hyperbole to describe the shrub that it grows into as being larger than all the garden plants. It may be that, that if he were in America, he would talk about a redwood coming from just a small cone seed. Some mustard shrubs could grow as high as nine feet, uh, close to the Sea of Galilee, though. But Jesus seems to employ Old Testament language in describing the Gentile kingdoms, the way that they're described, for instance, in Daniel 4. They were described as being, um, where the, these kingdoms were described as being so large and beneficial to the world, and the people of the earth are described as birds that are able to build nests in their branches. It's the idea of being a blessing to the world around them. And the point that Jesus seems to be making here is what we know to be true. The kingdom of God on earth transforms from small to great and is a greater blessing as it does, as it does transform. There is no way of seeing the future success and expansion of the kingdom of God by looking at the humble, personal work of Jesus and his followers. As one writer says, little is great where God is at work. And of course, it was dangerously unwise to reject Jesus due to his ministry being unimpressive or because it received an underwhelming welcome by the masses. Let me ask you, which of these situations would you expect to do better? A mustard seed planted on earth or a fully grown redwood transplanted onto the moon? Which would you expect to uh, be in a better spot a year from now? The earth's environment is ideal and the moon's is anything but the right environment. Where the kingdom of God flourishes, life flourishes. Western civilization has flourished because of the principles of God's kingdom is sown into its DNA. Western civilization has been impacted measurably by Jesus and his kingdom in the form of Christianity. Christianity underlies our approaches to science, to human value, to freedom, to morality, to health care. As Dinesh D'Souza wrote, Christianity is the very root and foundation of Western civilization. Where we have seen God's kingdom more expressed, we have seen human flourishing, the flourishing of life. And in the same way, as the mustard seed is small, but is transforming. Look at how the church in, in China, in the Middle East, among the Boran people whom we support, look at how just the sowing and the receiving and the accepting of the gospel will transform and flourish despite the harshest environment. Because what's important is, is the kingdom of God expressed there. What is surrendered over to God will eventually transform his kingdom. And the person of the Holy Spirit indwells will increasingly be ruled 
by his lordship. I say, I want to, from the parable of the leaven, let's see how we can trust that God's permeating work can bring transformation. It says, we told, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Jesus tells his followers that his kingdom is like leaven. Okay, so like leaven is like yeast. All right? You know, uh, you guys that make, uh, a, put a cake, make a cake, you're going to put eggs in it. The eggs are going to have a leavening effect to it. It's going to make it rise. It's going to make it fluffy. You don't put eggs necessarily in cookies. You don't put leaven in cookies because you don't want them to rise and get fluffy. Yeah, I'm not right about that. But anyways... Stay in my lane, right? (laughs) So anyways, Jesus describes a homemaker taking a huge amount of flour. It's enough to feed a hundred people, right? This three measures of flour. She introduces a small amount of leaven or yeast into the batch of flour or, or dough. And eventually, given enough time, that leaven infiltrates and permeates the entirety of the batch. And in the same way, the kingdom of heaven seems small and insignificant, but it permeates and will eventually infect every part of what it would be put into. This is really where we see uh, the impact of the church in the Chinese church, in Middle East, and in, in, in among the Baran people, as I mentioned. That where the gospel is received, where the gospel is worked into it, there is, a, there is an impact for generations. It can't be uprooted. It can't be removed. And that's why dictators are so afraid of it. As I mentioned, what is surrendered over to God, he will eventually transform for his kingdom And the person that the Holy Spirit indwells will increasingly be ruled by God's lordship. So just in concluding here, remind you, trust that God's methodical work will win in the end. And God's transforming work will be a blessing. And God's permeating work can bring transformation. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray that even from this simple message, you would sprout your transforming work. You would change us. You would permeate us. And Lord, that looks like trusting you. It looks like resting in who you are despite where the world might be going. And Lord, we we are grieved for our world. We are grieved for how our culture, so blessed by your truth, is insistent 
on uprooting it from its core. We are grieved as we see our culture fade like flowers that have been cut because it's been cut from your truth. But Lord, we pray and we we know in faith that you have a transforming work where your gospel is received. You have a permeating work where you are present. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use us, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless every effort that we make to be a part of your kingdom work in the daily lives that we live. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.